so good to be together to continue our series in Colossians. This is a great book, um, and we're kind of getting to the heart. Though we've entitled this series "Transformation of the Heart," um, we might say that that Colossians three, the chapter that we're in right now, um, is the heart of transformation. And so we're gonna we're gonna take a look this morning about how how we really change, how we get traction in change um, in our life with Jesus, all right? And we're going to be in Colossians 3, um, verses 5 to 11 this morning. Dan, Pastor Dan, uh, was in 1 through 4 last week. Um, before we do that, I want to uh, want to have a little fun with you. Um, I have four children. They're about grown now. Um, but one of the things that my children introduced to me um, was kids' books. And um, it, was, it was great. To, we loved to read together as a family. Um, you have any favorite children's series that you like to read? I think it's good for, uh, for us never to lose touch with our, uh, with our childhood in some ways, right? But um, one of my favorites is Frog and Toad. Okay, you guys know Frog and Toad? Arnold, Arnold Lobel? Okay, so this is, a, this is a little story called Cookies. All right? So Toad baked some cookies. These cookies smell very good said Toad, and he ate one. And they taste even better, he said, so Toad ran to Frog's house. Frog, Frog, cried Toad, taste these cookies that I have made. So Frog ate one of the cookies and said, these are the best cookies I have ever eaten, said Frog. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another, You know, Toad, said Frog, with his mouth full, I think we should stop eating. We will soon be sick. You are right, said Toad. Let us eat one last cookie, and then we will stop. Frog and Toad ate one last cookie. There were many cookies left in the bowl. Frog, said Toad, let us eat one very last cookie. Then we will stop. So Frog and Toad ate one very last cookie. We must stop eating, cried Toad, as he ate another. Yes, said Frog, reaching for a cookie. We need willpower. What is willpower, asked Toad. Well, willpower is trying very hard not to do something that you really want to do, said Frog. You mean like trying not to eat all of those cookies, asked Toad? Right, said Frog. Frog put the cookies in a box. There, he said, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. Frog tied some string around the box. There, he said, Now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can cut the string and open the box, said Toad. That is true, said Frog. Frog got a ladder, and he put the box up on a high shelf. There, said Frog, now we will not eat any more cookies. But we can climb the ladder and take the box down from the shelf and cut the string And open the box, said Toad. 
That is true, said Frog. Frog climbed the ladder, took the box down from the shelf. He cut and opened the box. Frog took the box outside and he shouted in a loud voice, Hey, birds, here are cookies. Birds came from everywhere and they picked up all the cookies in their beaks and flew away. Now we have no more cookies to eat, said Toad sadly. Not even one. Yes, said Frog, but we have lots and lots of willpower. You may keep it all, Frog, said Toad. I'm going home to bake a cake. All right. Now, uh, from the mouth of children, right? Um, doesn't this describe in so many ways our attempts, even in the way of Jesus, to stop doing the things that we believe at some level or know are wrong, destructive, maybe even addictive, and yet we find at some fundamental level that we are trying really, really hard not to do the things that when we're really honest, we just sort of want to do, right? And isn't it true that so much of the methods, if we were to boil it down in our patterns and stuff, is some sort of crazy cycle of employing, kind of turning over a new leaf, using lots and lots of willpower that somehow exhaust, right, over a fairly short period of time, and we kind of collapse back into the thing that we didn't want to do, right? And we manipulate sort of, you know, we, we, we go through cycles of like, well, I might as well give up. Let's just, you know, let's just eat the whole box, and we'll try again next week, and then we hear a sermon, or we have a moment of regret, and so we, we, we bolster up our willpower, and we try again. Okay, and we go through these cycles. Now, the question is, is this what Jesus had in mind when he talked about the abundant life and the freedom for which God has set you free? That we would battle with willpower against the things that we find fundamentally we are oriented to love so that we have one set of things that we know we should do and another set of things that we actually want to do. Okay, that's the question. I'm going to let it hang for you. Is this what Jesus had in mind when he offered freedom, the kind of freedom that actually sets you free? Now, here's my thesis this morning for the sermon. Our actions change, ultimately, when we live from our core identity in Jesus not by simply trying harder through willpower. So here's my, here's my thesis, that Paul, in this letter, in many other places, the apostles, and Jesus himself, were not offering a self-help technique to improve your life or the human race through trying harder. They were, they were actually offering a revolution at the core of your being that changes the life flow, the stream, the power source, the motivation to the core of your being. 
Okay? And that this way of transformation by the Spirit is very different than all the other versions of self-help that you can find at Barnes & Noble. Okay? It is much more than willpower. Okay? And we're going to look at it here in Colossians 3. You can decide by the end of this talk whether my thesis is bunk or whether you think that this is revelation you know, from the Lord. All right? Now, I'm going to say that there are four things, four movements that are a part of this transformation in Jesus. The first we covered last week okay, and in various places. Like, you know, when I spoke a couple weeks ago on Colossians 1, certainly there, about our new identity, that you in Jesus have awakened to a fundamentally new identity that is rooted in God and comes through the power and the revelation and the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. That Jesus literally came from God, a community of love, came into our world, took up the human existence, human condition. He entered our alien nation. He brought all of God and his love and life to earth. And through his life, death, and resurrection, ascension, took all of human existence and its alienation, including us with him, back to God. And that he poured out his Holy Spirit, which he talked about, you know, he used various metaphors, but you know, remember the metaphor with Nicodemus of being born again, that people that come to this awakening in Christ actually become new creations. That everything has become new. That the old has gone, the new has come. The Apostle Peter said it this way. He said that by his precious promises, you have become partakers, literally participants, in the divine nature. That, that somehow the very life and power of God has taken root up in the ordinary person through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, that what has happened to you is that you have not signed up just simply for a new moral code. You haven't just been given an example or an aspirational like direction of a better life, but that you have been fundamentally awakened to the core of your identity, which is in God. Okay, now, I'm not making this up because let's, let's look again what, at what Dan talked about last week. Since you have been raised... To what? New life with Christ. Okay? This is the way that Paul says it here. That you have been united with Christ somehow supernaturally in a way that something at the very core of yourself has become new. There is a seed of the supernatural from Jesus with Jesus, in Jesus, that is now in you. Can anybody say, whoa? Okay? Now, it's something that we have to come to understand, we have to learn to live with and from. But knowing who you are is the first step in fundamentally altering the life flow 
of the way that you live because of this simple truth. If you have, if it's true that you have the life of Jesus, what also do you have with that life? You have new capacity. You have the capacities of Jesus. And now this is, this is a bit of a head-scratcher because in a lot of the conversation that I grew up around related to Jesus, it's sort of like Jesus obviously is the Lord. We know that he is, that he is you know, by his own declaration, God himself. And so we sort of put him on a completely different plane. And it's sort of like, I've actually had people say to me, like, come on, give me a break. I'm not Jesus, right? Sort of like, what do you expect? Um, and certainly, so we have, we have that level, but then we also, we also tend to divide up, you know, our um, communities. So this is odd. I mean, you probably don't think this about me, but, but sometimes we put pastors up on pedestals and we think, well, the way life works for pastors is sort of different from, I mean, I'm not a pastor, so, so what do you expect? I'm not Jesus, but I'm also not a pastor. Or you might say, you know, uh, you know, Jill has been in church her whole life. You know, I only started going in the last five years. Like she had a head start. Okay, so she has, she has sort of a different kind of playbook. And you see what Jesus is saying here is that every person that comes to him in faith and is awakened to the miracle of what he's done is united with Christ in a way that, that you have a new life. That that life is the life of Jesus, that his life has actually been birthed in you. And this awareness about your identity changes what you can hope for. Because with it comes a different capacity. Okay? A capacity for the life and desires that come from Jesus. And this is very different than fighting the desires that you have by trying really hard not to do what they're saying. Okay, it's different. Now, in this new life, secondly, here's the second movement, you have a new battle. This awareness produces a new kind of tension in you because, because you realize that you are not who you thought you were, that your upside, your ceiling your very core is different than you would have ever imagined, that you're in touch with a power and a life, a connection to God that, that brings on a capacity but also a, a fight with the habits that you formed in your body previous to this awakening, to this miracle. So look at this in verse 5. You can follow along in the text if you want. I'm only quoting part of this. So put to death, so put to death the sinful earthly things that are lurking within you. Because of these things, uh, the wrath of God is coming. And then if you look at verses 6, 7, 8, 9, it gives, it gives us sort of a litany of the kind of destructive things that are part of the old kind of life. The, 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 person who, the person that is living out of their willpower, out of their, short, 
out of their, their, their um, misdirected identity, they don't believe that they have capacity that goes beyond right now, that's a very fearful thing, right? Like to wake up in the morning and to, to believe that you're alone, to believe that you're, to believe that you're limited in your resources, to believe that whatever you don't scratch out of life and existence, you're going to lose. To believe that no one is really looking out for your ultimate good and your destiny. To believe that all of that is on you. To believe that every other person around you is basically scratching out the same existence. That's a fearful thing. That produces anxiety. That gets you out of bed in the morning with a jolt. Because whatever you don't earn and scratch out of life, guess what you're not going to have? That. And so every ultimate thing, like significance in life, like belonging in life, like security in life, all of that's up to you. And your resources are limited, so you start to shortcut, right? You start to take from others. You start to cut in line. If you believe that there's, a, that, that there's not abundance, there's scarcity, that means that every other thing that a person gets is something that you don't have. And everything that you're going to scratch out, like your part, is something that someone else is going to lose. Your, the clock is ticking on your life. And so anything that would validate you, whether that would be sexual, whether that would be things like greed, this is what this passage talks about, whether it would be lying to get ahead, whether it would be slander to run their people down and to, you know, go on, you know, the best defense is a good offense. To make sure that you win. You see, this is the, this is the way of life all over the world and through history through people who have, who have transcendent longings for significant security and meaning, but, but find no place to find fulfillment for them except in themselves. This is the life without hope. This is a life characterized by fear and striving. It's a life replete with ultimately shame and regret. An ever-present dread that I am not enough and that I don't have enough. And so, Paul, this messenger of Jesus, is saying, do you realize fundamentally what has happened to you? Through the incredible grace and power of God who has sent Jesus to you, he has demonstrated that it's not a zero-sum game. That the very resources and the abundance of your creator are for you. That he has come himself to demonstrate the full intentions of his heart and to announce to you through the good news of the gospel that the God of the heavens simply will not rest without your conclusion. Good news of incredible grace. 
and that he has granted through his gift and his power the news that you are no longer alienated from God, that you are connected to him, that you are in his heart, and that he has a plan for you that begins right now but will never end. That the, that the destiny of your life is more beautiful and glorious than you can possibly imagine. This is who you are. Right? That's the first announcement. And in that announcement is that you can stop the endless use of people and of things. You don't need that anymore. You've been freed to actually become part of the good news itself. The extension of God's good news and his love to all the people around you, which completely reorients you to your own self, to all of your relationships, but to the world around you. You follow what I'm saying? Like you can actually be a human connected to God in the way that he, that he originally designed it to be, with him instead of disconnected from him. And that you can draw resources that flow right out of the very center of your being, that connection, that give you capacity and love and power and peace. You see what I'm saying? You can stop. Not because you're trying really, really hard not to do something bad, because you find fundamentally that you want something better. See? This is what he's saying. And, by the way, the wrath of God, the opposite of love, is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. Anything that you have energy to be passionate enough to be fiery about has in its root something that you care about. And so what, what Paul is saying here is that God, as love, is imposed fiercely to unlove, to everything that is actually ruining hope, destroying lives, hurting people, misusing the planet. See, he's fiercely committed in his love simply to not let this stand. This is the whole reason he came, that he himself went to the lengths that he did to demonstrate this kind of love. And so those of us who are up into this love, the fire of God's love illuminates, it warms, but it also burns out everything that is not love. So to align yourself with God is to align yourself with love which means that we fight the battle from our core of coming to grips with our identity, who we are, and why we're here. Okay? Now, the strategy for this kind of life, there's several things. We begin with reminding ourselves continually of our identity, who we are, what we have. Remember Jesus said, don't be afraid, little flock. Why? It's the Father's good pleasure to give you 
all the things that you seek, the things that you most fundamentally need. What would life look like for you today and this week if you honestly believed that God was with you, that he was for you, and that he was going to give you everything that was truly good forever? Would it change the way that you thought and lived, felt about people and life this week? Yeah, it fundamentally changes. So strategy number one is we remember that. Strategy number two is that we begin to cut off the resources from the destructive habits and automatic responses that we formed in our former way of life before we had this awareness. You know, we develop habits. Um, if you don't believe this, um, have you ever been in your car, like maybe this morning, even in a snowstorm, and you're driving along and you realize that your mind has been on something, maybe at work or at your, a conversation you're going to have later, and you don't really remember the last 10 minutes on the road? Ever had that happen? Like where you kind of lose, you just kind of drive down the road and just, it's sort of unautomatic? So your body automates everything that it can, takes it offline. We do things automatically through habit. So the very, the very habits of our life and our former way of life are automatically, like when we feel threatened, the therapists call it triggered. You know, you just, you just go into sort of a script. Like, you've ever had a fight with your family, and it's like, I've had this argument before. It's like the hundredth time. You know, we do it the same way, but I know it's how it's going to end, but we're still going to go for it. Because it's, because of the, it's because of the cycles and the habits that are embedded in our body. So we've got to begin to make no provision for these destructive ways. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just give you one other example. We could talk about this forever, but uh, I have a lot of people that seek me out related to addictions. So whether it's porn or it's eating addictions or it's whatever. So one of the things that we talk about is like, well, where do you get the porn? <laughs> well, you know, my phone and blah, 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 my computer and this and that, or the alcohol or whatever it is. Well, the beginning place, it's not sobriety itself. But the beginning place of like a serious inventory for something like that is you've got to get the ice cream out of your refrigerator if you binge at 2 in the morning on, on, on ice cream, right? I mean, like if you're serious about it, it's like you can, try, you can wait to the moment and try really, really not hard not to eat the chocolate chips, right? But the decision probably was made when you loaded your freezer up with chocolate chips, right? So, I mean, it's just like it's, some of this is just like if you're serious about it, you got to, like, do an honest inventory of how you manipulate people and things to feed the destructive habits, okay? And then bring it into community and bring it into light and make a plan. And, you know, so there, it doesn't, it's not like a magic wand on this, but it's because you have perspective and capacity and room for even wanting something different that's coming from God. And then, and then, obviously, we don't, we don't do this like with a sense of scarcity or aloneness. We do it with this constant awareness and interaction of God with us, which is the Holy Spirit. Um, and we, so we ask God for help, right? 
Now, here's the third movement. Even more important than this new battle, this new awareness that we have to fight, we have a, we have a new relationship actually to put our energy into. So look at this in verse 10. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. You know, the primary way to change your actions ultimately is to experience uh, the heart of God, to experience his heart. Now, let me tell you a story. Remember Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey? Remember that? Like the, the, you probably got this in some time in high school. <laughs> you know, ancient, ancient mythology. Really cool stories in there, right? Like a lot of our movies and stuff get made out of some of these ancient stories. Well, one of the, one of the big heroes in the Iliad and the Odyssey is Odysseus. Remember, remember that name? He was, a, he, was a world, he was a warrior and a world conqueror, a world traveler. So he had all these adventures that Homer talks about. One of them, one of the adventures that he had um, was a close brush with the sirens. Okay? Sirens were mythological creatures. They were beautiful. They were very erotic. And they sang beautiful songs. And sailors that would hear their sweet music and be allured by their charms would be driven mad. They were so captivating. And so they would dive over the, shore, over the boats and swim towards this apparition of beauty only to find that the sirens were actually devouring and cruel monsters. Okay, so it was sort of a picture of the things that sing to us in the short term but ultimately destroy us. Okay, so Odysseus had heard rumors of where these sirens were, and so he developed a strategy on his ship with his men to beat the sirens. And so what he did was he filled the, the ears of all of his sailors with wax so that they were unable to hear the songs of the sirens. Okay? But he wanted to experience the full impact, so he instructed his men to tie him with strong ropes to the mast of the ship and under no condition, no matter how much he pled, if he lost his mind, to let him out. And so you get the picture. They're sailing around the cape. The sirens begin to sing. The sailors don't hear them. So they're just doing their thing. Odysseus, ears unplugged, tied to the mast, begins to go mad, is screaming at his sailors to let him go, they don't. He passes through, regains his presence of mind. They untie him, and he's like, wow, I have a story to tell. Right? That's one of the stories in there. So a number of years later, Odysseus' a companion, Jason, makes the same trip. He has a different strategy. His strategy was, instead of using the air wax or the strong ropes, he employed the services of the most talented musician in the known world. Her name was Orpheus, who sang such beautiful music that as they passed the sirens, the beauty of Orpheus 
And and that song was so much more compelling than the song of the sirens that all of the sailors and the ship passed the sirens and had a great time because their beings were filled with something more beautiful. You follow the difference? Now, what Paul is saying to us is that there is a relationship, a connection to everything that is actually good and beautiful and true and satisfying in love that comes from God who made you and knows perfectly how to ultimately fulfill the questions and the depths of the human experience. And he is inviting anyone with simple faith in Jesus to move so deeply into that connection and that heart to learn to know their creator in this way that the song and the beauty and the power that comes from God can increasingly fill your being to such a degree that all the counterfeit songs, by the way, Starbucks, if you look closely at the, at the figure on the cup, is a siren. They're mocking us. Literally. It's like, you know, you got to go for your next fix, your $6 fix. That the beauty that comes from God can so fill the human person that the counterfeit songs begin to lose their power. And friends, when you don't have to be bound by masks and you don't have to have your ears plugged with wax and you find that you are doing more and more what you actually want from the very core of your being because it's good, that's freedom. That's the freedom for which Christ has set you free. And it is possible in the way of Jesus to become so connected to the goodness of God that all the other counterfeits begin to drop off in your life. And you're free. This is the freedom for which Jesus came to set us free. Okay? Finally, this. A new mindset. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free. Christ is all that matters. Um, and he lives in all of us. So it doesn't matter whether, you, whether what your ethnicity is, your religion, or your economic status, the things that divide our world, like we, we tribally divide around these things. There is, a, there is a way that connects you to God, but actually to all other people that is also free. It's a world that's free. Can you imagine what would happen this morning across the world if people were so connected to God and so full of his beauty and so, so, so living from this new identity that, that God intends for the whole earth? that they no longer divided over ethnic, racial, religious, or economic tribalism. Wars would stop. The slave trade would end. 
prostitution, all the usatory things, power, dictatorship. This is, a, this is a picture of an entry into the world that is to come, the world that God will not surrender in his intentions for us. And it can begin now okay, in a group of people. Now, let me just tell you one story in closing. If you drove all this way in the snow, you might as well get your money's worth, right? Do you remember the Rwandan genocide 15, 20 years ago, whatever it was? There's movies been made about it, like Hotel Rwanda. In the gen- what basically happened was there were two, two tribes that lived in Rwanda, uh, the Tutus and the, was it the, uh, the yeah, the, the Hutus and the Tutsis. The Hutus and the Tutsis. Now, I can't remember which one is which, but basically one, one was a lot larger than the other tribe. But the smaller tribe, because of some predated stuff, had more of the resources. So they, the, they were, the smaller tribe was a little richer, more educated, the, the, big, the larger tribe was more of the working class, the masses, okay? Because of rhetoric and power dynamics in the country and history and all this stuff, basically politicians, kind of like what we've got going on in our country right now, were playing identity politics. They were basically, they were basically wanting to get elected and get power by appealing to people's base tribal identities rather than their common and they began to foment this stuff. Well, no one knows exactly sure why or how, but the larger tribe basically decided in, a, in an outbreak of violence that began to eliminate the other tribe. So these were neighbors, people that worked together, went to school together. You know, they were just from different, they were friends, you know, they were ostensibly friends. It would, it would just be like kind of in our community, two different kind of ethnicities, kind of living side by side. Well, once the killing started, it seemed like it would never stop. Over the course of 100 days in the summer of 1994, one million Rwandan Tutsis were slaughtered by Hutu militias. The brutality and scope of the massacre defied imagination, shocked the world. When it was all said and done, when the violence stopped, this was neighbor on neighbor. It was so widespread. They had over 100,000 documented cases of neighbors killing people. So it's like, how do you even bring justice? One million people dead, 100,000 mostly mass murderers. The brutality of this was like, it was mostly with clubs and axes, and they didn't even have, it was just unbelievable. So the question became, how did this happen? How could it happen? How do we prevent it from ever happening again, right? People were just, the world was absolutely horrified. Now, here, let me add one fact here. Rwanda was the most evangelized, in other words, Christian nation in Africa. That's the part you don't hear as much about. So, if you would have, pre-1994, if you would have said, like, what 
country in Africa has the most Christians? Like, where has the gospel like, gone the farthest, where the church has been planted the most? Rwanda would have been right up there in the top, if not the top. Okay, so you get the picture now? One million people dead, 100,000 murder, mass murderers, mostly Christians. Like, they would, they would recite very similar creeds to the one that we have in our church. So I'm reading a book right now by a guy who is, like a Rwandan who is like trying to unpack this. Resurrecting faith after genocide. Um, I think what he says bears very particular import for us right now in this condition that we are in in our country. Three days after midterms or whatever. Rwanda, this is quoting from this guy. Rwanda's social history reveals to us how stories can, can kill. Yes, people did the killing in Rwanda, and yes, they used weapons to do it. But apart from the story that taught Rwandans to understand themselves as distinctly Hutu and Tutsi, eternally at odds with one another, the genocide could not have happened. To look into the mirror that is Rwanda, we need to pay closer attention to how our identities get shaped by stories that so often remain hidden. Do you follow what he's saying? He's saying even though these people were Christian going to church, they would say, I'm Christian, their deeper functional identity, the way that they thought about who they were, was more in terms of their tribal identity than their Christian identity what they felt that they needed to survive and to thrive was more essentially coming from their tribal, like, you know, their disconnected identity than, than their Christian identity. So they were Christian, but also more distinctly, more fundamentally Tutsu or Tutsi or Hutu. Now listen to this. Once these identities were shaped and this imagination fomented, Christianity made little difference in Rwanda. Christianity seemed little more than an add-on, an inconsequential relish that did not radically affect people's so-called natural identities, therefore not the goals or the purposes that they pursued. The Christian story is actually about offering a fresh lens through which we see ourselves and the world and others. In the process, Christianity is meant to shape a new identity within us, creating a new sense of we. A new sense of we. A new community that defies our usual categories. Jesus inaugurated the new social order that is coming and has now come in the beloved community of those who trust God and live by the Holy Spirit's power. For anyone who will believe a new reality is possible. Now, do you follow what I'm saying? Part of what this passage, Colossians 3, this deep look at transformation is meant to do is to reshape your sense of who you are. Let me ask you a question this morning. Who are you? 
Who tells you that at the core? What do you believe is possible for you? How are you connected at that identity level to the resources that you actually draw today to live? The goals that you set, the purposes? Is it possible that you have a dual identity? That there is another identity that is actually deeper than your Christian one and your functional self? Is it possible that you are more American or Republican or Democratic or something like this than you are Christian? Happens. So here's some, here's some questions as we end. Have you put on your new identity in Jesus? That's not a guilt question. That's an opportunity question. Do you know who you are? You got a battle plan? To functionally start to work that into your automatic responses? Is your focus on experiencing God? Like, is, it, is, it, is, it, is your energy towards not sinning, or is it actually towards running into what's good and beautiful with God? Is your mindset actually God's kingdom, or is it tribal? Okay? Um, let's take a moment, reflect, and I will pray for you. I actually really love you um, and open to any dialogue around this, okay? So amazing, Jesus, that you came just announcing the day of the Lord's favor, proclaiming good news, saying that the days of alienation were over, that the kingdom of God is actually, had actually come, that it was possible now for any kind of person, even the one on the very farthest margin, to step into connection with you that began now last forever, that completely transformed the very core of our being, that connects us to life and all of its flow, that ravages, ravages us in good, goodness and beauty, that lets us rethink and step back from this mad race of using people and things to try to prop up our insides, that, reform, that reforms the way that we relate to other people, can even change nations and communities. Oh God, we rejoice that this has all been given to us by gift. We rejoice that you're like this. And God, we just want to align. We just want to align. We're catching up. We're growing. Um, we're recognizing things. We're becoming aware. We just want to catch up, God. Help us by your Holy Spirit. Help us by your Holy Spirit to step into life with you. Um, bless my friends. Like, Lord, if there's any way that we can draw strength from each other, if there's hard conversations that we need to have about stuff that's going on under the hood, if there's prayer that we need, if there's relationships that need attention or mediation or mending, um, God, if there's outreach or neighbors or just people that we can, we can, come, to, we can come at in a new way, the, the civil discourse in our country, 
God, all of this needs such renovation, such transformation. Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you're with us. Help us, bless us. Uh, give us what we need today. In Jesus' name, amen.